As we open God's word now, we'll read first from the book of Isaiah, as our Old Testament reading on page 712 in your pew Bible. Read Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 5, and then we'll also turn over a couple of pages to Isaiah 42, where we'll read the first four verses. First Isaiah chapter 40, beginning at verse 1. It says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You can turn over to Isaiah 42, where we'll read... Verses 1 through 4, um, this is from the first of the four servant songs in Isaiah, which culminate in the song of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, the fourth servant song. Here God speaks of the character of that suffering Messiah to come. He says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. The coastlands wait for his law. And then for our New Testament reading, Luke chapter 3, page 1020, in your pew Bibles, we'll read the first 22 verses of Luke chapter 3. Luke writes for us, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book, of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. 
And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none and whoever has food is to do likewise. The tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. The soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation... And all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water. But he was mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked John up in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. The voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Congregation, you recall in recent weeks, we've considered the visitation of the angel to Zechariah, John's father. We Uh, saw the visit of Mary to his mother Elizabeth, the birth of John and his naming and circumcision when Zechariah sang that song that we just sang a moment ago, that you, my child, will be the prophet of the Most High God, will go before the Lord to prepare his ways and to bring the knowledge of salvation to God's people in their sin. That's what Luke has thus far revealed about John, who then grew and became strong in spirit, it tells us in Luke 1, verse 80, and was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. That's that public appearance that we read of here in Luke chapter 3, where this child, as promised, begins to prepare the way for the coming salvation of God, both heralding that salvation and also uniquely picturing that salvation in both the things that he suffers and also in the baptism that he administers. An event sort of like the circumcision that I'm not sure we appreciate nearly as much as we ought to, or the, the coming salvation of God is, is pictured and previewed in what it is that Christ submits to. And before we get to that picture and to preview, I want to think first about the context of this coming salvation in verses 1 to 6, and then it's heralding by John in verses 7 through 20. 
Let's look at me first at verses one through six of our passage and the coming salvation that is here spoken of in terms of Isaiah's prophecy that we just read a few moments ago from Isaiah 40. Where Luke tells us here in these opening verses that um, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor over Judea and Herod was tetrarch over Galilee and, and Philip and, and Lysanias were over some of those other regions while Annas and Caiaphas were serving as priests, the word of God came to John. It's really quite an extended introduction that I think tells us a couple of things. Um, first of all, it, it reminds us that Luke is not unconcerned with historical details. Remember, we saw that in uh, Luke 1, 1 to 4, in that first sermon through the book of Luke, where in uh, Luke 1, verse 3, um, he, he says that he's uh, written this orderly account, that he's, he's investigated all of these things very closely for some time past. Luke shows us there that his concern is not just theological, but historical. We saw the same thing in Luke chapter 2, where he, he gave us that historical introduction, those opening verses of Luke 2 with regard to the birth of Jesus. Where again, we see that his concern is not only theological, but also historical, for theology must be grounded in history. Everything that Luke is going to tell us about Jesus through the next 24 chapters of, of his gospel was historical. It, it really happened so with the preparatory work of John. He, he came when, when Pontius Pilate was governing and Herod and all of these other names whose very appearance in these opening verses testifies to the historical reality of the events of which Luke writes. And yet not only their historical reality but also that these men of history are not Luke's main concern. For notice how each of these seven names sort of, sort of fade into the background as Luke draws our attention to his main concern, which is not Tiberius Caesar or Pontius Pilate, but John. Notice the main grammatical clause in verses 1 and 2 is, the word of God came to John. As one commentator says, that's the main event. Luke is essentially trivializing all of these heavy hitters of that age, itemizing seven of them, but then says the really important event was the word of God coming to John. He exalts here the significance of preaching. What matters most isn't what's happening in the 24-hour news cycle, but what's happening in the pulpit from whence Christ is building his church. Luke here places our focus on the word of God coming to John amidst all of these well-known rulers of his age. What really mattered was the public address of the word of God to his people. As we sang just a moment ago, the preaching that God is tender-hearted and by him are sins forgiven. The proclamation of the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Luke, both throughout this book and throughout volume two in the book of Acts, wants us to see the importance of the public proclamation of the word of God, which is everywhere, front and center. See it again as Jesus begins his ministry. In Luke chapter four, he does so preaching. And as Luke here begins to, to describe this preaching of John, he tells us, um, interestingly, that it, it took place not in an ordinary pulpit, but verse 2, in the wilderness. 
which is kind of an interesting place, boys and girls, for, for John to preach. But I, I think as Luke tells us this, it's, it's not insignificant, but, but the wilderness throughout the Old Testament is associated with the exodus and with the exile. What John is doing here is, is, is he's leading the people out in, into the wilderness to, to sort of re-enter the land, crossing through the waters once again, sort of acting out this, this return from exile and second exodus as they pass through the waters into the land, which fits with the, the passage that Luke quotes for us in verses 4 through 6. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight his paths. Every valley is going to be lifted up. Every mountain and hill should be made low. The crooked places will become straight and the rough places will be made level and all flesh will see the salvation of our God. That's how Isaiah 40 prophesied of this second exodus and return from exile that Luke now tells us is happening. By quoting from Isaiah 40, Luke is telling us the coming salvation of God when God would make a a highway through the wilderness to to bring his people back and save them and redeem them once again is happening. His quotation of Isaiah 40 signals the fulfillment of that prophetic hope when God himself will bring them back and save them. And he will be their God and they will be his people. This second exodus that that Luke speaks of by by hearkening back to Isaiah, he tells us will include not only Israel, but verse 6, he says, all all flesh will see God's salvation. Remember our first sermon through Luke, uh, we saw that there's not only going to be this second exodus theme that Luke weaves throughout his gospel, but also this theme of Christ as a second Adam, who saves not just Israel, but all humanity. And and Luke here signals that for us again in verse 6, that all of these prophetic hopes of a a second exodus um, apply not just to Israel, but to all humanity as Jesus is the second Adam who's come to save people from every nation. Luke is here signaling for us that all of this is about to be fulfilled in the one for whom John is preparing the way which we see him doing then in verses 7 through 20, really the the longest section of our passage where I think we see several things in this second point um, with regard to John's heralding ministry. We don't really have time to consider all of them in detail, but I want to just sort of list in this middle section five, we call them five marks of John's preaching ministry. We'll focus on a few of them at greater length. Um, Notice in the ministry of John, as he's preaching to these crowds in the wilderness, uh, notice, first of all, the, the plain-speaking boldness of John's preaching. Where he calls some of those who come out to him brood of vipers. Boys and girls, what does that make you think of? As, as we think about snakes or, or vipers in, in the Bible, that's, I think, supposed to remind us of Genesis chapter 3. We spoke of that conflict between the seed of the woman on the one hand and then the seed of the serpent. When he calls them here brood of vipers, it's like he's calling them seed of the serpent. John here doesn't hold back, but he he speaks to them very plainly. He's not afraid to to say things that might not endear them to him. He's not afraid to say things that might make people not like him. J.C. Ryle says, well would it be for the church 
if it had more plain-speaking preachers like John. Not that we revel in uncharitable language, but we need to be willing to give offense if God's word gives offense. And that John does with not only his brood of vipers comment, but also with his warning of the wrath to come. This is the, the second mark of John's preaching in both verse 7 and verse 9. He speaks very plainly about the reality of God's judgment for those who do not repent. So he preaches with a plain speaking boldness, but he preaches about the reality of hell. He speaks of the wrath to come. He'll speak of it again around verse 17 as he speaks of the winnowing fork that will be in Christ's hands. John's ministry reminds us that that too is a subject that faithful preachers must proclaim, that those who do not repent as as he calls them to and believe on the coming Savior for whom he prepares the way, those who do not do that will face God's judgment. That was the case then and that remains the case now. John's heralding ministry is characterized by a plain speaking boldness. It's, it's characterized by a proclamation of the reality of hell. And then third, by a warning against presumption. Um, notice verse 8. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for God can raise up children of Abraham from the stones. John is warning those who come out to participate in this baptism neither to trust in the baptism itself nor to trust in their ethnic identity, but only to trust in the one to whom John points, confessing their sins, turning away from those sins, and looking to Christ. He's warning them not to think that either religious connections like the family or nation into which they're born or religious signs like baptism are sufficient to save apart from genuine faith and repentance. Bear fruit, he says, in keeping with repentance. Don't think that your connection to Abraham will save you. Don't think that your church membership will save you. Don't think that the water that is poured over you will save you or or the fact that you walked an aisle or went to a conference or went to a certain school or performed a certain religious ceremony. But you must believe on Christ and repent of your sins. Verse 9, he elaborates a lasting repentance that bears fruit and shows itself in the way that John lays out for us in verses 10 through 14, which are simply several examples. This is not an exhaustive list of his his preaching or the the application of John's preaching, but verses 11 through 14 are simply a couple of examples of, of, of John applying this truth to particular persons and showing them the kinds of sin that they must turn away from, as must we. As we confess in Lord's Day 30, we must hate our sin, trust in Christ who cleanses us from it, and then seek more and more to lead a godly life, running away from that sin. Realize it is vain to say with our lips, I repent, if we do not at the same time repent in our lives. To say that we are sorry for our sins is mere hypocrisy unless we show that we're willing to give them up. Isn't that what John reminds us in verses 7 to 14? The plain speaking boldness, he warns of the reality of judgment, 
He warns against presumption, calling us to a real repentance, not trusting in religious connections or religious ceremonies. But fourth, he calls us ultimately to trust in the Lord Jesus. That's the fourth mark of John's preaching ministry. It exalts the Lord Jesus. You see that in verses 15 through 17 where he points to Christ as the source of their salvation and the object of their faith over and against all of these religious ceremonies and religious connections. He points them to Jesus. He says very clearly, I am not the Christ, but, but the one to come after me who is mightier than I am. And so here we, we see the most significant mark of a preacher of the gospel, the, the most significant of these five marks of John's preaching he makes much of Christ, commending him as the savior of sinners, the main object of his preaching. That was John's focus, as it must be every preacher of the gospel, to magnify Christ more and more in the esteem of his hearers, to make us think more of Jesus. As John says in in John chapter 3, he must increase, I must decrease. So it must be that every minister of the gospel, heralds of salvation, heralds of Christ. Verse 18, preachers of the gospel. You see that, that phrase, good news. That's what John has come proclaiming. As we sang before the, the sermon, preach that God is tenderhearted and by him are sins forgiven. Preaching plainly and boldly, not hiding the reality of judgment, nor forgetting the necessity of repentance over and against presumption, but a faithful preacher, even as he preaches those things, must preach them the context of the good news of salvation, exalting the Lord Jesus. And then last, even doing so at great cost to himself. That's what we see in verses 19 and 20 that there were apparently some who did not like John's message of faith and repentance and so persecuted him. Namely, Herod, who we met in verse 1, who it says imprisoned John for preaching against his adultery amongst many of his other sins. And actually, if you read on ahead in in Luke's gospel, it tells us in Luke chapter 9 that Herod will eventually cut off his head. The fifth characteristic of the ministry of John as a model for all preachers is a willingness to preach the gospel even at great cost to oneself, to uh, preach against sin even if those that you stand against will lash out at you and seek to harm you. A faithful preacher must call sin, sin both in his private and public ministry even if it causes others to oppose him. As Herod does here, only exacerbating his evil by punishing the one who calls him to account. Let us not respond this way when our our elder or pastor or parent addresses our sin. But let us rather respond like the sinners and tax collectors of verses 10 through 14 who will enter the kingdom before those who respond like this to the gospel. Herod here teaches us how not to respond. And John teaches us how to persist in proclaiming the truth even amidst opposition. And yet that's not John's only function in verse 20. And certainly John is the first of many in Luke and Acts who will suffer for the cause of the gospel. But his function here is not only to give us this, this first example of a cross-shaped ministry, but to point us to the cross itself. 
Remember, John is, is the forerunner of the Messiah. He has come to proclaim in his ministry the person and work of Jesus. And here, even in the things that he suffers, he is proclaiming Messiah's work not only with his lips, but with his life. John is like Job or or David, those Old Testament prophets who not only testify to Messiah's salvation by the things that they preach, but by the things that they suffer. So John, in his rejection and, and, and arrest and eventually his death, prepares the way for the Christ will be rejected, arrested, and unjustly executed by those who will not hear his message. By my count, I, I think there's only two examples that we have in Luke's gospel of, of, of arrests or, or imprisonments. We have this language of John's arrest here, and then the next time that we see it, it comes up in the end of the gospel where Jesus is arrested and bound, will suffer and be executed unjustly. John here foreshadows the passion even in the things that he suffers. He is not only in his preaching, but even in his death, a herald of salvation. This is the same kind of thing that that God will later do with Paul and with many throughout the history of the church. He he puts the sufferings of Christ on display through the lives of his servants. And and so John, even as he proclaims Messiah with the the content and and conduct of his ministry, he, he becomes also a paradigm, a pattern for all who would proclaim Christ. Proclaim him plainly. And warn of of the judgment for those who reject him, who warn against presumption, but exalt the Lord Jesus through faith and repentance and do so, proclaiming his passion not only with our lips, but with our lives. Such is the ministry of a true herald of salvation. John proclaims the Messiah and the coming salvation, that second exodus from sin and death with both his lips and his life. May God give us more men like John, who finally also uh, pictures or previews salvation for us, not just in his arrest and the things that he suffers, but even in the baptism that he administers in verse 21, where Luke is is sort of transitioning now. He um, mentions John's imprisonment as Christ now takes center stage, but but there's really a bit of overlap where even as John fades into the background at the end of verse 20, Luke starts telling us about the beginning of the ministry of of Jesus. The baptism that commences that public ministry was, we know from Matthew, administered by John. And that's clear enough here in Luke as well. It says, when all the people had been baptized and Jesus also was baptized, that's clearly referring to the baptism of John that we've just read about, which, which Christ apparently also submits to This baptism, I believe, gives us a a preview of the kind of salvation that Christ is going to bring. It is going to be one of identification with sinners. Think about it. This baptism is one of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. It's it's being administered to tax collectors and, and soldiers who've been extorting money by threats and by false accusation. It's being administered to sinners. And yet here, the sinless son of God, the one who has perfectly kept 
everything in God's law, as Luke has been at pains to show us in the last couple of sections, in both his, his circumcision and presentation of the temple, and, and even in his youth as he, he went to the temple and was a man or a young boy who loved to study God's word, and it says in verse 51 of Luke 2, to submit to his parents and obey. Here, the, the sinless son of God steps in line with sinners. The sinless one identifies with sinners. Just like the circumcision of Jesus, his baptism preaches the gospel. That he has come to be one with sinners. Though he has perfectly kept God's law ever since his birth, he identifies with sinners in a baptism of repentance. You can almost picture the the, the line of thieves, adulterers, liars, murderers, all kinds of sinners And then Jesus, standing right there in line with them. And as the the waters are poured over their head to symbolize the washing away of those sins into the water, that filthy, sin-soaked water is then poured over Jesus' head as their sins are placed on him. He identifies with sinners so that sinners might be cleansed. You see how the baptism of Jesus is a preview of the cross where he who knew no sin became sin for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I don't think this is, this is um, fanciful or imaginative, but I think Luke actually supports this by the fact that later on in his gospel, what does he refer to the cross as in Luke 12 verse 50? But the baptism that he must undergo where the wrath and judgment of God for sin will be poured out upon him. Already pictured here as the sinless one identifies with sinners. His first baptism here pointing to his second. We could say that the shadow of the cross here falls over the waters of the Jordan. The way that Christ is going to save his people is by bearing the judgment of God for their sin. Here we see a picture of that. We we see a picture of of substitution, a picture of sacrifice, which I think is is also seen in verse 22 where God speaks of Christ as as heaven's open, the the spirit descends, and a voice comes from heaven, the voice of the Father. He refers to Christ as his beloved son. Many commentators point out that that language of Christ as the beloved son appears to to recall or or echo the words spoken of Isaac in Genesis chapter 22. Isaac, the son of sacrifice. Here, Jesus, as the true and better Isaac, will will be laid upon the altar of the cross, and, and God, verse 22, is well pleased. Why this reaction? At the baptism of Jesus, why does it say that God is well pleased with this? Because here is being pictured the very thing that Jesus has come to do. And to the Father who speaks, to the Spirit who who descends, they, they echo their delight, my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. God the Father is well pleased with this shadow of the sacrifice of his Son. That language of God being well-pleased actually um, echoes also the prophecy that we read from Isaiah 42 where uh, God there says of of his servant that his soul delights in him. It's well-pleased with him. Remember that servant song that we read in Isaiah 42 is the first 
of four servant songs between Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 53 that, that culminate in that song of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 where God's wrath will be poured out on the suffering servant. And so in both the language of Christ as the beloved son, echoing the, the, the language spoken of Isaac, the son of sacrifice, and also in this language spoken by God the Father of Christ as the one in whom he is well pleased, in both of those are Old Testament echoes of the wrath of God being poured out on a suffering sacrifice. Sacrificial overtones are, are everywhere in this passage. The baptism of Jesus is a preview of the cross through which Christ will bring about that second exodus by passing through the waters of judgment himself to save his people from sin and death. As they do what John here calls them to do, and repent of your sins, trust in Christ and his bearing the wrath of God in your place, and do not trust in anything else. Not in your religious connections or family or ethnicity, or church membership, not in religious signs like baptism or the table to which we came this morning, but trusting, not in in the things themselves, but in what they picture. The cleansing of your sins by Christ, bearing them for you, the sinless one, identifying with sinners so that sinners like you and sinners like me might be saved. That's what Luke and John are, are calling us to believe in this passage. They're heralding the gospel of Jesus and calling us to believe it. And here's the the beautiful thing as we do. Just as our sins of which we repent are placed on Christ, so God's righteous verdict of Christ is given to us. That we too in Christ become God's beloved sons and daughters of whom he is well pleased. As you repent of your sins and trust in Christ who bore the wrath of God for you, what God there said of his son, he says of you. As his good pleasure in the son overflows to those who trust in him by faith. That's the good news of verse 18 that John and Luke are here proclaiming. That's the good news that Luke is picturing for us in the baptism of Jesus. That he calls us to believe not resisting this good news like Herod. Not refusing to repent of our sins nor trusting in religious signs or religious connections like those in verse 8. But trusting in the blood and righteousness of Jesus alone for the remission of sins. Trusting as we sang just before the service. Only in the blood of Jesus. Nothing but the blood of of Jesus. May God give us grace more and more to believe that. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus that was pictured in his baptism, and we pray that you would grant each one here faith in the person and work of Christ in whom you delight not to trust in our religious connections or signs, but repenting of our sins to trust in Christ alone. Grant each one here that same spirit who descended on Christ, that more and more we might believe on him, assured that our sins have been placed on him and he washes us clean as pictured in the waters of baptism. 
so that what you say of him, you say also of us, that we are your beloved sons and daughters with whom you are well pleased. Increase our faith in that. Even those moments where we are tempted to believe otherwise as Satan tempts us to despair and tells us of guilt within, increase our faith in the fact that our sins have been placed on Jesus. His righteousness has been given to us. And so what you there say of him, you say also of us. Lord, we pray that through both the sacraments that you have given and through the word just preached to us, you would increase our faith in that. And Lord, we pray that you would be so kind as to raise up more preachers like John who would continue to proclaim this same gospel with a holy boldness, exalting the Lord Jesus. We pray this for the glory of your Son, the glory of of the Spirit, for your glory, our triune God that we see so beautifully pictured in this passage. We pray it for your glory and for the salvation of sinners. In Jesus' name.